We are starting the show, though, talking about evictions in B.C. and why so many people are evicted in this province. There has been, I think, some stigma around that evictions happen because of non-repayments or damage to property. That was actually only 18% of the data that revealed. Almost 60% it's the prevalence of landlord evictions, and that means they want to use the property or sell it. All right, that was Amanda Burroughs with the First United Project. We talked about that on Friday as well. Amanda Burroughs was talking earlier today on Mornings with Simi. Joining me now is Dr. Craig Jones. He is the co-author of a new report. It is called Estimating No-Fault Evictions in Canada, Understanding BC's Disproportionate Eviction Rate in the 2021 Canadian Housing Survey. Craig Jones, thank you so much for being with us today. Thank you for having me. Well, it's uh, not a title I think anybody uh, would really want when it comes to titles, saying that BC is the eviction capital of the country. Can you break down those numbers a bit for us? Yeah, sure. So uh, so my co-author, Salah Shwareb, and I uh, worked uh, together a couple of years ago on the 2018 Can- uh, Canadian Housing Survey. And when we did our analysis of that round of the survey, we estimated that uh, BC had an eviction rate of just over 10%, and that was uh, relative to a national average of about 6%. And But importantly, the uh, BC had a statistically significant difference in their eviction rate compared to all other comparable provinces. And so when we uh, did this study using the new data from the 2021 survey, uh, we had a slightly different uh, access to a, a new question, which was really uh, informative, but when we calculated again that five-year eviction rate from 2016 to 2021, it came out at over 10% again. So, And again, uh, it is statistically significantly different from all other comparable provinces. Uh, do we know why or does the report shed any light on the reason why it's so different from other provinces? Yeah, so, um, so in 2018, we were working with a pretty simple question, which was, what was the reason for your last move? Uh, and then one of those answers was due to a landlord, uh, bank, or uh, government. In the 2021 round of the survey, there was a new question that was added about have you ever been forced to move by a landlord? And if respondents answered yes, then there was a follow-up question that, that said uh, that asked, well, what was the reason uh, for, that, for that eviction? And so what we could do then is we grouped three of those responses, uh, sale of the property, landlord use and uh, renovation, demolition or conversion. And we grouped them together into what we called uh, a no-fault eviction on the assumption that, you know, that has nothing to do with the tenant. And so what we're able to see by using that grouping is that we find that uh, we estimate that the national average for that kind of no-fault eviction was around 65%. We have an estimate for BC, which was 85%. And when we take a look at the eviction rate by national and by the four largest provinces, we see that this no-fault eviction rate over that five-year period for BC is 9%, whereas the national average is 4%. Hmm. So we have some, we have a high degree of confidence that BC's higher eviction rate is largely driven 
by a higher rate of no-fault evictions. Right. And when we say no-fault evictions, we're talking about, and I think you touched on this, so if a, if a landlord, say, is selling the property and the new owners aren't going to be renting it or if the landlord is going to be using it for their own uh, purposes, whether moving family in or something like that. So it's, And it's not, we're, we're not talking uh, about all of these cases being things like rent evictions or, or something where, where people are being evicted for, for no real reason. Uh, so yeah, at the national scale, we see that the that sort of that answer for the rent that were rent eviction would fall in um, doesn't make up for a, a large proportion of the responses. The the, the biggest responses are um, uh, sale of the property and landlord personal use. Did that answer your question? Yeah, uh, yeah, because I, I think there's sometimes when we when we talk about no fault evictions, there, there, it's easy to kind of make the jump that the landlord is doing something nefarious, and it's not not oh, as though that's right. always the case. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Like um, within the within the survey data that we have, uh, we really can't speak at all to uh, the, whether or not these are good faith or, or bad faith evictions. It's a, it's just a, a, a it's an element that the data just does not speak to at this time. Right. Uh, do we know if it if it's also because of the the housing market itself, and that BC does tend to be a little different, or Metro Vancouver a, a little different from other parts of the country uh, as far as prices and, and the the cost of housing. Yeah, it's, it's really hard to establish a, a causal relationship in this in this regard, um, but we do observe that um, you know BC does have higher than average uh, rents and does have uh, higher uh, property values, and so we you know we, we we recognize that and and say you know perhaps this is part of this process. We do have a pretty active real estate um, market in BC. So these could be all contributing to that. But again, it's, it's almost uh, with the data that we have in front of us, it's really hard to say that definitively. Uh, what else did you take from this or stands out to you as far as uh, getting a better picture and looking at evictions and how they're happening in BC? Yeah, one thing that we were able to look at is uh, we could um, take a look at the, the incidence of uh, evictions uh, relative to the, the type of landlord. And so what we found is that uh, renters that were currently in uh, private rental units, you know, have a, have a private landlord, uh, had a statistically significantly higher uh, rate of eviction uh, than those who lived in um, non-market housing. Uh, yeah, that's one of our main insights. Yeah, you know, I was curious about that because I know we've heard heartbreaking stories in some cases of people who have been in rental units for decades and didn't realize that it was a strata unit where there can be kind of different rules or where it could be sold and, and they'd be out. And, and I was curious about that, if, if people have more rental security, maybe in some types of rental housing as opposed to others. Yeah, we definitely found uh, that in the data, uh, we saw that there was, a, you know, those, those who are in sort of non-market housing have, have a, enjoy a you know, a relatively higher degree of security of tenure. Um, we also uh, suggest that um, more purposeful rental in the in the in our supply system would be a good thing because there is relatively more security of tenure in a purposeful rental building. For instance, it's not um, quite so straightforward for uh, landlords' personal use to to reclaim the unit. Uh, the sale of a rental building would not necessarily mean that the new owner owner wants to move in. Um, and we just haven't seen new rental construction, uh, you know, since the 90s, except there has been there is a really encouraging uh, turnaround, particularly in BC, is that we're seeing more personal rental being built now. So I think that is 
uh, I think that's a good thing and, a, and just something that we should look forward to having more purposeful rental. Right. So, so, uh, so a bit of bright light, I guess, on the horizon, but that's still going to take some time. My guess is we're still going to see these high percentages and these numbers for, uh, for at least the next few years, wouldn't we? Well, it's, I mean, as a researcher, you try to avoid predicting the future as much as possible because you know, you know, it's, it's not an easy task to do. Um, however, I do think that although the numbers are rates are not um, directly comparable because the question uh, is slightly different, so the method is a little bit different, um, but that we see this between the 2018 Canadian Housing Survey and the 2021 round of that survey, we see that same observation of BC having a higher uh, rate overall, and that difference being statistically significantly different from most, almost all, all comparable provinces, that does suggest that uh, in the next round we might uh, expect to see that continue unless there might be some significant, significant interventions. Or, yeah, so that, that would be my guess for the future. I would expect uh, this, this uh, it's not really a trend, but this uh, reality, this estimate to stay the same. All right. Interesting findings for sure. Craig Jones, thank you so much for your time today. Thank you for having me. Thanks for being with us today. Well, the president and CEO of the National Police Federation, Brian Sauvé, put out a statement, and this is about threats and violence against police officers, and it referenced an officer in Duncan who was injured after somebody rammed that officer's police vehicle. The statement goes on to say that officers need better protections and better funding. Joining me now to talk a bit more about this is Chris Fowler, who is a board director with the National Police Federation. Chris, thank you so much for being with us. You're more than welcome, Jill. Uh, this was a statement that was put out from the National Police Federation talking about what we've seen, unfortunately, uh, officers that have been injured recently. Uh, can you tell us a little bit about this statement and what specifically your organization is calling for? Well, in this case, we're addressing an ambush by one of our Duncan North Coalition members who was victimized while in our parking lot and um, in the circumstance surrounding it, which is now under investigation in the IIO, we're seeing yet another pattern of police being targeted um, by means of ambush. So though we have some really great training, what we do when we train is respond to circumstances and now we're seeing police officers who are being randomly attacked, um, which is very troubling. And to your point, what we're calling on is for the governments at both the provincial as well as the federal level to, to make some meaningful changes as far as bail reform goes, as well as uh, parole goes, so that we don't see this kind of revolving door of clients coming back onto the street many of whom are related to the circumstances where we've seen nine members of our police family killed in the last nine months. And I know this call has been made before. I think your organization had met or or following a meeting, made some similar calls back in October of last year. Do you feel like you're being heard or that these concerns and these requests are being taken seriously? Well, I don't think that they can happen fast enough. I do respect that the judicial process, because we're asking for legislative reforms, uh, does take some time. But what I would hone in on here is all delays are costing people their lives right now, right? We have one member of our policing family being killed per month on average in this last little while. 
Um, and the community's safety is intrinsically tied to police safety. We need police officers to be safe in order that we can keep your community safe. So what what is too fast? I, I'm not sure. Uh, because when people hear this too, I, I think when when I mean we've talked a lot uh, on on this show about random attacks in in the public, how many we're seeing each day, and, and people uh, members of the public being threatened and not feeling safe in their communities. But it does seem to kind of take it to a different level when we're talking about officers. We're talking about people who are trained to keep the public safe, and they are the ones now that don't feel safe. Yeah, I think, you know, um, all of us acknowledge in the last four years uh, coming out of COVID, there was a substantial lack of resources. I think we saw an increase in mental health issues from this, stressors onto people. And then during that same period, we saw resources being scaled back due to inabilities by um, these places to be able to get to them and support them. Now, our public, as well as our police officers, are, are bearing the brunt of that. So, we need to prioritize making sure that some of these social issues are being addressed as quickly as we can because they're intrinsically tied to the criminal issues. And I would say, and I'm, I'm going to say, that they're tied to these ambushes. We need bail reform, and we also need to have these individuals getting the support before we get to the point where we're dealing with criminality. And when we talk about those two things, so uh, bail reform and and parole reforms, uh, asking for uh, changes there, and then also asking to address the root causes of crime, uh, would you put those at the same level or is one of those more of a priority than the other? They have to be addressed in tandem. Um, They're intrinsically associated to one another. We have individuals who aren't being supported through these social means and they're pushed into criminality. And then at the same time, with the individuals who are already in that system, who are are dealing with the criminal justice system, if you've been identified as somebody with violence and a violent crime, we shouldn't see these individuals going to, and I'm going to use an example out of Ontario, where the offender went to jail for an armed robbery, served three years, the majority of their time in a minimum security prison. They were involved in another incident where they stabbed somebody within the jail and then were released. Uh, They were released back into society quickly prior to that three-year mark and then days afterwards killed one of our police officers, killed a a police officer from the OPP but the policing family in general. So uh, mental health resources and getting in front of it has to start now but we also have to stop the killings now. They both have to happen in tandem. What would it take then? What reform is needed for, with that example that you just outlined then? Somebody in, in that scenario, is there not already the law that's in place? Would a judge not have the choice to keep that person uh, incarcerated, to keep that person in custody? Or, or what changes then need to be made to make sure something like that, that individual or an individual in a similar situation is kept behind bars? Judges do have some discretion, but they're also bound by the jurisprudence or case laws associated to the client's circumstances. So bills like Bill C-75 that put weight on a lot of um, the offenders' rights and and their releases, what we need to do is, as a society, we need to reassess and we need to start putting some weight into the victims' rights 
I know that in addition to this, uh, again, addressing the root causes of crime and dealing uh, with bail and parole reforms, uh, your federation has also is also calling for the return of sustainable funding levels uh, so that members of the RCMP can carry out their mandate. What impact do you think or how important is the, the return to sustainable funding levels and what would that actually look like? We have seen in British Columbia a $462 million uh, input of funding, but I would note that that funding is making up for years where our funding was frozen. So years of degrading police's ability to reach out, get resources, get things in front of this has led to where we are now. So yes, we need more funding moving forward, but what we need to know is that that funding will come each year and we're not going to start a program and then a year and a half into it, we're going to collapse it as a result of it. We need the ability set up something that moving forward is sustainable and has the ability to protect Canadians over the long term. What do you do next then? Again, I know making this request and uh, like you said, going to all political parties and those in charge. What do you do next, though, to try and actually get some movement with this and to get these changes made? The NPF is working with expert legal counsel in developing risk and policies. We're calling on uh, the MPs to work with us, the MLAs to work with us, as well as the other police associations who have the shared same goals. And us collaboratively to work together swiftly to make these changes and to move them forward with the support of all of the legislature, the support of all of the House of Commons, and to make the safety of Canadians a priority. All right, Chris Fowler, we'll leave it there for today. But thanks so much for joining the show to talk more about this. Appreciate it. Thank you, Joe. I appreciate your time. Well, you likely heard about this in the news and some very frightening moments at Surrey Memorial Hospital this past weekend. One man has now been arrested after what police are describing as a violent and unprovoked assault. Surrey RCMP say it happened uh, Saturday night and a father and son were actually at the hospital in the care assessment and treatment zone. They were visiting a patient when they were assaulted. They were stabbed. Thankfully, Their injuries are not life-threatening, but again, one suspect has been arrested. It's raising a lot of questions about security and safety measures that are in place at our healthcare settings. And joining the show now is Amon Graywall, president of the BC Nurses Union. Thank you so much for making some time today. Thank you for having me, Jill. Uh, I know you, you can't talk specifics and going into uh, what happened here, but that must have been frightening for everybody involved, including the nurses who were on shift. Absolutely. I mean, this is very uh, concerning and very disturbing. You know, our nurses go to work to provide care for their patients and uh, should not be, you know, at any risk of being injured while they're at work performing their duties. And so it's very traumatizing. And I just feel for anybody that was working or that was a patient there on Saturday night, you know, very traumatic to have somebody that is attacking not one but two individuals and one of them a child. And, uh, you know, we need to have increased uh, security measures in healthcare settings to better protect our patients, nurses, and all the other healthcare staff and patients that are 
on site there. Uh, do you know if any nurses or healthcare staff were also threatened when this happened? Not that I'm aware of. I did hear that, uh, you know, possibly a knife was thrown, but that's just uh, hearsay. All right. When, and when you talk about more security measures, so in this case, as I understand it, it was a security guard or a hospital security. They were able to intervene. They were holding that suspect down for uh, and waited for police to arrive to, to arrest the person. But when you talk about increased security measures, what would you like to see? Well, first of all, uh, back in October, the government announced... Uh, 334 protective service officers. They've now changed that name to relational uh, security officers. And so that's 320 officers and 14 uh, violence prevention leads in uh, 26 sites through BC. And so my understanding is that the full implementation of that program will take place this coming September 2023. However, that is only 26 sites in BC. We need that to be increased to cover the entire province so that every facility has 24-7 security services. It's not something new hearing about violence in uh, hospital settings, but, uh, you know, back uh, in the fall, there was um, a gun incident. I believe that was in Trail somewhere in the uh, interior. And, um, you know, we need to make sure that the healthcare facilities are safe for our uh, staff and patients to be uh, going to work. And I know we talked when, when that announcement was made about the increased security officers at those sites, at hospital settings. Uh, so has it, has it been delayed, or you mentioned kind of the change in the, in the title. Has that commitment changed? No, they never gave a timeline. And uh, I had thought that it would be at least minimum of June from the way they were speaking about hiring and training. So to hear that they want it fully implemented by September kind of fits along those timelines but I would like to see that uh, expedited that uh, they need to uh, make this happen a little bit faster and uh, you know have those robust uh, response measures included which is de-escalation techniques uh, being able to uh, physically restrain a violent patient based on the circumstances, um, having the police respond as necessary. Some of our rural sites do not have security at all, and the police may be, you know, kilometers away, um, and I don't even know what their reception may be like in the mountain passes, but, you know, to be able to have somebody in site is what is required just so that we are not reliant on the police as well. And then what we need is the advanced training for them to include cultural awareness training, emergency response, as well as a clinical awareness. Do you think healthcare settings need metal detectors? Um, that is something that, uh, you know, the government needs to look at. Uh, the physio- the feasibility of it, there are so many entrances. It's not, uh, you know, one entrance into an emergency department or into a hospital. 
Uh, I leave that for the government too. And uh, there is also Switch BC, which uh, works on uh, the occupational health and safety aspect. But they need to be looking at that. All right. Uh, I'm on Greywall. Thank you so much again for making time to chat more about this today. Appreciate it. Thank you for having me. Take care. Would you be surprised if you found out you had money sitting in an account somewhere, money you had completely forgotten about? Well, if you did, you would not be alone because millions of dollars are sitting in unclaimed accounts. These are unclaimed funds and they are available for to the people who rightfully own them. So we are going to talk a little bit more about this with the BC Unclaimed Property Society. This is a group that has been doing this, reunited, reuniting British Columbians with their funds for 20 years. And joining me now is Executive Director of the BC Unclaimed Property Society, Sherry McLennan. Sherry, thank you so much for being here. Thank you. I'm really happy to be here today. Well, it's always such an interesting one, I find, because there is so much money. And in case there's any confusion, I know your group had a bit of a name change, so people might remember it as a different name, but you are now the BC Unclaimed Property Society. Can you give us just a quick recap on what exactly the society does? Sure. The society is a nonprofit, and as you said, we're celebrating our 20th anniversary. So we've been reuniting people with their lost or forgotten funds for 20 years. And when we can't find the owners of the funds, we transfer a certain number of funds to the Vancouver Foundation. And that allows us to make a social impact so those unclaimed funds are put to work. All right. And let's talk about where things stand this year. And am I reading this number correctly in that there are more than $190 million currently in unclaimed funds available in BC? There is. That's uh, the amount we have in our database. We've been tracking, uh, government's been tracking since 1859. And uh, we took over the program from the government in 2003. So it's a lot of money. And what kind of accounts are, are people forgetting about? Or, or why are we seeing this money just sitting there? Oh, there's lots of reasons. Um, a lot of the time people move and they forget to change their address with all the uh, institutions that hold their money. Um, or it could be an account like an RSP that you don't look at very frequently. Sometimes uh, when marriages break down, there's an account that gets forgotten about and both parties are setting up new accounts. So just forgetting to follow up is one of the main reasons why there's unclaimed funds. And the other main reason is that people don't know they're entitled to the money. So again, it could be moving. They didn't tell their employer or past employer and leave a forwarding address. There's unpaid wages. Um, Another big one is inheritances. Uh, eccentric Aunt Susie maybe did have a lot of money under her mattress, right? Right. Um, And For me, one of the ones that's really interesting is uh, proceeds paid into court during litigation. Money gets paid in, there's a court order made, pay this money in, you know, it's a foreclosure, it's a debt action, and then nobody follows up to get the money paid out and it becomes unclaimed. So that's a big one. I understand as well. Well, before we get to this rather large amount, is there generally, is it generally under a certain amount of money or or is it around the same amount or is it it very widely? It varies widely. The uh, median for our claims, so 50% 
uh, up to 50% or under $500. But I can tell you last year, our average claim paid out was over 4000 hmm. So there's quite a range. Wow. And tell us a bit about this is a, an unclaimed estate. And uh, from what I'm understanding, this is the largest unclaimed amount that you've seen. Yes, that's right. We can't say too much about uh, any of the particulars because of privacy reasons. But yes, uh, this this one point nine this one point nine million dollar estate is uh, is there to be taken. <laughs> that it just seems like such a big amount that that. And I know you can't go into great details, but is this surprising to you? Even that you're dealing with a one point nine million dollar estate that has not been claimed. Well, it, it is surprising. It, it's very large, um, but our previous uh, wills and estates legislation was quite complex in terms of uh, having to track everybody in your family tree. The legislation was changed a number of years ago to simplify things, but for some of the older estates, it does make it more complicated for people to claim the funds. Hmm, all right. Uh, so what can people do then? I understand as well, even though all of this money is still sitting not claimed, you have seen an increase in people at least checking to see if maybe they or close relatives have any of this money sitting out there. We have. We actually saw a 76% increase in inquiries last year, which was amazing. Um, it's probably because of inflation driving consumer prices higher and people are feeling, you know, the household budget being squeezed. Uh, but it's really terrific that they're looking. And all they have to do is go to our website, bcunclaimed.ca, and enter their name in the search bar. They'll see it right on the homepage. It couldn't be easier. And how do you know it's it's actually you, though, in that there, there would be people in the province, if you're putting your name in, there, there could potentially be somebody else with the same name? Sure. Well, once uh, you find your name, uh, we invite you then to set up an account and we will send you a letter, give you a little bit more information about the unclaimed funds. And then it's up to you to prove that you are the right Michael Smith, or as the case may be. And so we do give people advice on how to do that. We give them information on our website as well. But generally what we're looking for is some kind of documentary evidence that connects them to the claim. So it's a forgotten credit union account. It's an old statement that shows they had that account at the credit union. And then they have some government ID, proves who they are, and we're done. All right. How long does it does it take for an account to, to be considered unclaimed or I guess abandoned? How long does it have to be like that uh, until until you get involved? There's a variety of time frames because it's all set out in legislation. So it ranges from one year to ten years. So sometimes the money is pretty old by the time it reaches us. All right. And, and like you said, then people uh, can do this and, the, and then go through the process of proving uh, that it's theirs. What if it's somebody, say, that has a power of attorney or is a relative of somebody uh, and maybe that person has passed away? Is there anything they can do? Oh, absolutely. Yeah, we, we, we support people and walk them through the steps that they need to take, you know, because we can uh, deal with executors and powers of attorney, no problem.
All right. And like you said as well, then you mentioned that there has been a big increase in people making the inquiries and at least checking it out. Uh, is the goal here, I know, like you said, that, that you uh, support uh, through the Vancouver Foundation and, and there's that support, mm-hmm. but is the ultimate goal you would like to reconnect everybody with all of this money that's sitting out there? Oh, absolutely. That would be the perfect state is to get everybody, you know, reunited with their funds. Um, it's their money. They deserve to have it back. And it's uh, meaningful for, for many people to recover those funds. And can you tell us again, just to give the website, because I'm guessing there are going to be a lot of people punching in their names and perhaps the names of some close relatives into the search box. So where can people go again to do this? Sure. It's bcunclaimed.ca. Cheaper than a scratch and win. It's free. (laughs) (laughs) All right. Sherry, thank you so much for joining and for talking about this today. Appreciate it. Well, I appreciate you having me. Thanks so much. Bye-bye. Thanks for being with us on this Monday afternoon. Well, my next guest is an emergency room physician, but also an author, having written books such as Pandemic, Resistance, Rage Therapy, and his new book is called Fit to Die. Daniel Calla joins me on the line now to talk a bit more about this. Thank you so much for being with us. It's great to be on with you. Thanks for having me. Well, this is a really interesting read. Your latest book is called Fit to Die. I'm curious, though, with the book now out, you must have started writing this and started researching this just as maybe the public was learning about Ozempic and what was happening with weight loss. How did that all happen? Yeah, you know, I always try to target these hot button issues. I mean, I write fiction, but I try to find interesting societal, scientific, medical issues that are a bit controversial. And I was starting to see a lot about the, you know, the, the toxic diet industry. And, and you know, I had, I've had light, long worries about eating disorders and the social media focus on, uh, you know, ideal and unachievable body standards. And so I had an idea to put it all together in this novel. But yeah, Ozempic was hardly known when I started it about two years ago. It's in the novel, of course, but um, yeah, I didn't. I didn't expect to, it to explode like it has in the last uh, six months to year. I was curious about that, given that Ozempic is named, and I wasn't sure if we were just kind of late learning about it. I, I even having, despite having done the research 18, 18 months ago on this novel, I'm still surprised how big Ozempic has become in the popular culture in the last little while. I, I want to ask you more about that, but let's uh, talk a bit more about the book itself because uh, people will know, uh, like you said, that you draw a lot from what you see uh, as an emergency room physician and uh, a lot of your books have medical uh, threads through them. Uh, pandemic, I'm sure people will remember as well. Uh, so this is uh, a book, like you said, it is about uh, diet pills. It's about uh, all of those things that you mentioned. How do you build the characters in that I, I can see kind of the, the medical characters would be things that you could draw from your life experience. But when you, you're bringing in police officers and celebrities, how do you build and mold those characters? Yeah, I mean, it happens somewhat organically, but obviously I, I like to be very medically accurate. So this story has a huge police procedural element. As you know, you know, basically, I'm sure we'll get into the plot, but it's about this resurgence or emergence online of this very deadly and very real diet pill uh, that I only found out about a few years ago. And there's clusters in LA and Vancouver of of deaths related to this horrible pill. 
And, you know, I had to create detectives both in Canada and U.S. doing a simultaneous investigation until the two investigations meet up to, to try to hunt down the source of it before it goes viral. And uh, I had, luckily, I had a local superintendent, Howard Tran of the Vancouver Police Department, who was super helpful in giving me background about the police procedural element and law enforcement stuff. I really didn't know that much about um, you know, and I can try, I, and I, even the medical elements, I, I, there's Dr. Jane McKay is the head of the St. Paul's Eating Disorder Clinic, and she was a great reference to me on, on information about treatment of eating disorders and such. So I, I always do try to turn to the best sources I can to make sure I'm very accurate, even though it's fiction. And you mentioned that it takes place in in Vancouver and elsewhere. There's a couple of other locations in Canada, but also Los Angeles in the States. Did that make it more challenging as well, that not only were you dealing with police procedure and things happening in Canada, but also in the U.S.? Yeah, a little bit. Certainly there were technicalities and, and differences in in, you know, not only the law enforcement, but the legal element of how they would go after an online distributor. But it also made it a lot more fun because I was able to write about these two very different but similar cities in that the health and beauty and diet industries have really, you know, they're very prominent in both Vancouver and Los Angeles. And people who are at most risk uh, in many ways uh, often live in cities like Los Angeles and Vancouver. So it was really fun to go back and forth and have this dual setting. And when you when you have the characters and the people in the book, the, the characters that uh, have taken these pills, uh, not giving anything away here, there are people dying after taking these pills. Is there do you do you not that you would base it on on real uh, patients, but you must draw things like you said from from seeing the eating disorders at the clinic. And, and do you draw from from real life experience then to, to build those characters? Sure, you know, in, in a very detached, not recognizable sense. I mean, I, I was inspired to write this novel because the drug, we haven't really mentioned the poison yet. It's called DNP, and it's an explosive from World War One that unfortunately has the side effect of, of causing weight loss, but it's also a very, very deadly poison, and it's emerged in the dark web and pushed online as a quick fix. And so I started reading about the tragedies, and it's almost always young people, um, both, you know, all genders, but tend to be young people, especially eating disorder and bodybuilding set. And in fact, just this morning, Jill, I heard from two separate parents uh, who lost uh, children to DNP, uh, one in the UK and one in the US, who emailed me when they heard about my book. Um, And, you know, and I I had read a lot about these tragedies, and it's just devastating. It's a, it's a poison that's really hiding in plain sight. I wasn't even sure if DNP was a real thing because when you read the book, and like you said, this is something that was used as an explosive and it's and people are ingesting it. I didn't realize that's something that's actually happening. Yeah, no, it's very much. There's been hundreds of deaths now across the world in the last <clears throat> 10, 20 years from this uh, poison. And it, 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 it's... You know, it has this, what, in medicine, what we call this super narrow therapeutic window where if you just take a few milligrams more, it becomes deadly. And cases of people who took two pills instead of one, or sometimes just are very thin and took one pill for six weeks every day, die from this. But as I said, it, it, it also has been proven to be effective in causing this really hyper metabolic state that makes people lose weight. 
but but it very much does exist and unfortunately it's very much readily available on the dark web if you want to search for it and that's that really scared me especially as a father of you know two young women who, who grew up and and were around you know not themselves but around friends and stuff who were very vulnerable to this kind of marketing so do you hope that, that people take away from the book, because they're based on things that are real things that are happening, are you, is the hope that people will enjoy them, but also learn and start those conversations? Absolutely. I mean, most of my novels are, in fact, some form of cautionary tales, but, but this one in particular is, is, is especially so. Uh, it was really meant to raise awareness. And that's what I try to do. I, I don't write nonfiction, but through fiction, I try to raise awareness and, and, and maybe get people discussing a little bit something that, as we said, is, is kind of hiding uh, amongst us and, and, you know, and too available. Hmm. And I know I've asked you this before, but, uh, and again, people know that you are an emergency room physician. Again, where do you find the time to write the books? <laughs> I, you know, it's my it's my favorite hobby. You know, the fact that this is my sort of second career, and and that somebody's willing to pay me uh, to do this is 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 just a hugely added bonus. So it's my, you know, I still work emergency medicine, not full time, but it's my relief and my escape. And to be able to create a story that that ties in, as you said, some some of the influences I see in my my day to day life and. Uh, share some some behind the scenes look at medicine it's it's a real joy for me to do so i i never look at the time when i'm writing and I, you know as long as i'm not tired i realized i can't write when i'm tired but i have i have weekdays off sometimes sometimes after a night shift i won't be able to sleep and uh, i'll want to write so I, it's never about the time it's just about having the ideas and uh having the momentum to tell the story. Just to kind of go back to what you were talking about with Ozempic, what are your thoughts given what we're seeing right now with it being so popular, celebrities talking about it, some not talking about it, but so many people buying into this or, or taking this drug for weight loss, not for diabetes and using it for weight loss? Yeah, I mean, Ozempic is a wonderful drug in the right context, like you say, for diabetes and even for certain conditions related to obesity where it does help, but I do worry about the trend that's happening and the, you know, that the relative abuse and people like Elon Musk and, you know, and others who are rumored to be on it, making it so popular online is another quick fix. And, and it does have some side effects, but also I worry, you know, anything that's too good to be true is usually too good to be true. And it's not a sustainable solution for weight loss anyway, for most people, because when they stop taking it, they almost always regain the weight back. And that's what, you know, a huge message in this story is, is just be careful what people are peddling you online and, and the power of social media and these, like, you know, these pop stars and, and other influencers can, can make people make poor choices. And, and I really wanted to get that message across. Dr. Kala, thank you so much for joining me today. It was great to talk to you. Thanks so much, Jill.